welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the book of the prophet Jeremiah. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. We are in Jeremiah 3 tonight. Let's talk about marriage, shall we? In the modern context, when people get married, the marriage becomes official when you have a ceremony Papers are signed and filed with the state, and then you get your state papers back, and then we consider that a a legal, verified marriage. That's not how it worked 2,000 years ago in the Middle East, or even before that among the Jews. A marriage was official when it was consummated. Of course, there would be betrothals, there would be agreements between parents, particularly fathers, And then the bride would be kept at her father's house until the groom came to get her. And there would be a feast put on by the father of the groom. But then at some point, the groom would take his new wife into a private place and know her. And it was that act of the two becoming one that did consummate the marriage. That is what established the marriage. That was the beginning of the covenant of marriage between the two of them. And so that is why, throughout the Bible, if one or the other of the two mates within a marriage were to commit some sexual act, some adulterous act, with somebody other than their consummated husband or wife, that destroyed the marriage to this day, In American jurisprudence, you can still obtain a divorce on the grounds of adultery. Because, again, especially in the Old Testament, the marriage itself was demonstrated, was consummated, was made real by that act, by that sexual act between the husband and wife. So if one of them were to be sexual with another person, that destroyed the marriage, that destroyed the covenant That destroyed the oneness of the two people, which is why Jesus himself, in talking about divorce, even included what theologians call the exception clause, because he said, except for the cause of adultery, because adultery does destroy the marriage. Now, last week, in looking at Jeremiah 2, as God was laying out his case against Judah in particular, He repeatedly said that they had committed adultery. And the reason that he used that particular language was because it did destroy the covenant between them. God repeatedly said, I was a husband to them. But then as they made pacts and deals with surrounding nations, as they intermarried with surrounding nations and went chasing after their gods, And these foreign religions started making their own idols and bowing down to it. That was a form of covenant breaking that God likened to 
the destruction of the marriage between him and Israel because they had committed adultery. Here in chapter 3, he's even going to say that in the case of Israel, the northern tribe, and we have to be very specific because the language in Jeremiah 3 is very specific, northern and southern kingdoms, he's going to say that he actually divorced the northern kingdom. Now, whenever you talk about divorce, people will automatically quote Malachi 2.16 to you and say, but God hates divorce. And that's true. God hates divorce. And he also divorced Israel because it was appropriate, because they had committed adultery against him. The same way that God says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, he still judges the wicked. He just doesn't take pleasure in it. Same way that he hates divorce, but he also did divorce Israel. And so we have to understand his language of adultery because not only is it leaving behind the emotional wreckage that we human beings understand, if you find out that your mate has been unfaithful to you, that just is emotionally chaotic. But on top of that, it is the actual destruction of the covenant, the agreement, the oneness between the two of you. The marriage itself has been damaged by that. And so that's why God keeps using this language of marriage and adultery. Now, worse than that, in Jeremiah 3, Jeremiah is speaking particularly to the southern kingdom, Judah, who he's going to refer to as Judah and Jerusalem. He's sometimes going to refer to Samaria. That's the northern kingdom. Sometimes the northern kingdom is called Ephraim. Sometimes they're called Mount Ephraim. Sometimes they're called the house of Israel. When you see the language of the house of Israel and the house of Judah, those are references to the northern and the southern tribes. And so God is going to liken the northern and the southern tribes to two sisters, Sisters, one of whom committed adultery, the other of whom watched the fallout. And God not only divorced the northern tribes, but then took them into the Assyrian captivity as their punishment for chasing after their Assyrian lovers. God said, okay, then. Go ahead, go with your lovers. They're going to capture you, and then they're going to hate you, and you're going to hate them. And so the treachery of the southern kingdom is that they have already seen God in his jealousy, in his determination to not have his love for his people destroyed as they chase after other gods. He then divorces them sends them into captivity, and Judah saw all that. Therefore, Judah should have wised up. Judah should have thought, well, we need to put our foreign gods away. We need to stay true to God because we too will be destroyed if we don't follow hard after God. And so God is sending Jeremiah to the southern kingdom of Judah to say, you're even worse than your sister." Because you saw what I did to your sister when she was unfaithful to me. And now you're continuing in your unfaithfulness. That makes you even worse. 
And in the midst of all that, God then holds out the prophetic promise that he is going to get Israel and going to go get Judah and is going to bring them back and that he is going to keep them from their lovers. And that also becomes thematic to the whole book of Jeremiah, culminating in Jeremiah 31 and the promise of a new covenant. So there is this consistency of holding Judah and Israel guilty and then punishing them for their guilt. But then because God doesn't change, and because the Abrahamic covenant is unconditional, and because God does not lose his people, which is really good news for us, because God is consistent and faithful, even as they continue in their rebellion against him, he keeps promising that he, by his own authority and power and sovereignty, is going to restore them and change them and take them away from their lovers and return them to him. So you're going to see all of that here in chapter 3, which I really need to start reading soon because we have a long way to go and not much time to get there. Now, in the law, in Deuteronomy 24, if you want to go look there, here's a rule in Deuteronomy 24. Let's go look at it. We're going to read the first five verses because this is what God is going to refer to first. Deuteronomy 24, starting at verse 1, says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house, and she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife. And if the latter husband turns against her and writes a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hands and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, is not allowed to take her again to be his wife, since she has been defiled. She has had a sexual relation with someone else. So she is not allowed to return to her former husband. God then says, for that is an abomination before Yahweh, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. When a man takes a new wife, he shall not go out with the army nor be charged with any duty. He shall be free at home for one year and shall give happiness to his wife whom he has taken. And all the wives say amen. Just a year of your husband working really hard to make you happy. Okay, so the general rule here is if a man takes a wife, he marries her, he finds some uncleanness in her, he divorces her, she goes and marries somebody else. If that husband dies or if that husband divorces her, the first husband cannot take her back because she has had sex with another man, thereby defiling her. And God says it's an abomination. It makes the land unclean. We are finally at Jeremiah 3, starting at verse 1. God makes reference to this very rule. God says... If a husband divorces his wife and she goes from him and belongs to another man, will he still return to her? Will not that land be completely polluted? 
Okay, so he's referring to that very same rule. No, you can't do that. Once you have been divorced by your husband, you cannot return to that first husband if you have been defiled by another man. Now God is going to liken that to what Judah has done, but you are a harlot with many lovers, and yet you turn to me, declares the Lord. So he's saying, I was a husband to you. I provided for you. I brought you into this land. I protected you. I made you a fabulous nation at one time under David, under Solomon. You were primary in the Middle East, and then you went chasing after your other lovers, making other leagues, chasing after other gods. And once you've turned to those other lovers, you can't come back to me. You know the law. You can't come back to me. And yet, in your time of trouble, you turn and say, where are you, God? And God is pointing out the hypocrisy of them chasing after other gods and then thinking that Yahweh will also love them and take them back. So God says in verse 2, lift up your eyes to the bare heights, to the plateaus, to the top of the mountains, and see where have you not been violated. By the roads you have sat for them. That was typical of what a prostitute would do. She would sit by the roadside. If you remember the story of Judah and Tamar, Tamar, in order to capture Judah, sat in the gate. He saw her by the road, thought she was a prostitute. So this was common activity for a prostitute, and he is saying, that's what you're like. You've been violated everywhere, and you sit by the road like a prostitute, like an Arab in the desert, like the people who are not Jews. And you have polluted the land with your harlotry and with your wickedness. Therefore... Here's the punishment for the way they have acted. Therefore, the showers have been withheld. God has withheld the rain so that he has made them hungry. And there has been no spring rain, and yet you had a harlot's forehead, and you refuse to be ashamed. Have you not just now called to me and said, My father, thou art the friend of my youth? Didn't you just do that? Didn't you just come to me in the midst of your trouble when there was no rain, when you were going hungry, when you needed protection from your enemies? Suddenly now you want me after you refuse to be ashamed by your harlotries? Now you say, my father, thou art the friend of my youth. Will he be angry forever? Will he be indignant to the end? Behold, You've spoken and have done evil things, and you have had your way. So God is demonstrating to them their guilt before him, and he is applying the rules from his own law that once they broke covenant with him and committed their harlotries with foreign gods, they can't come back to their first husband. And yet, he says, you keep coming and crying to me, even calling me father, calling me friend from our youth. So then the Lord said, now starting at verse 6, this seems to be yet another vision of Jeremiah. Those first five verses seem to constitute one message that Jeremiah was told to give. Starting in verse 6, then Yahweh said to me in the days of Josiah the king, have you seen... What faithless Israel did, 
She went up on every high hill and under every green tree, and she was the harlot there. Now, by now, you should be familiar with that language of going into groves, going up on hills, going under every green tree. That was where foreign gods were worshipped, and they participated in that worship. And so God says, I've seen it, I've observed it, and then he likens it to them playing the harlot in all those places. And I thought, verse 7, and I thought, after she has done all these things, she will return to me. But she did not return. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. So he's saying, have you seen what Israel, the northern tribes, did? They went chasing after their foreign gods. They went chasing after their idols. And they didn't come back to me. I ended up scattering them, giving them to Assyria. And her treacherous sister saw the whole thing. And should have been smart enough to say, well, if he's willing to do that to those ten tribes, what's he going to do to us? We better change our ways. I thought after she had done these things, she will return to me. But she did not return. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. And I saw that for all the adulteries of faithless Israel, that I would send her away. And I had given her a writ of divorce. And yet, her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she went and was a harlot also. And it came about because of the lightness of her harlotry that she did it so carelessly that she polluted the land and she committed adultery with stones and trees. She made idols out of rocks and trees and bowed herself down to them and thereby committed her harlotries with trees and rocks, and yet, in spite of all these, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with all her heart, but rather in deception, declares the Lord. They kept worshiping. The temple was there in Jerusalem. They kept the feasts. They kept sacrificing animals. They kept the religion of Yahweh, while at the same time chasing after their illicit lovers. Now, this is thematic to how God describes Israel and Judah through several different prophets. Soon after Jeremiah was done prophesying prior to Israel going into the captivity of Babylon, in the second wave of deportees out of Israel into Babylon, there was another prophet by the name of Ezekiel. And he picks up this exact same theme. And we don't know if he was influenced by Jeremiah's writing, but let's go look at it for a moment. Look at Ezekiel 23, because he's going to create this exact parallel two sisters, but he's even going to give them names in order to demonstrate that God consistently before the deportation, and then after the deportation, in explaining the guilt of Judah, uses this exact same analogy. This is Ezekiel chapter 23, starting at verse 1, and I'm going to read a pretty good long portion of it here. 
the word of the Lord came to me again, saying, Son of man, there were two women, the daughters of one mother. They played the harlot in Egypt. So he's saying even when they were in Egypt during their 400-year captivity before Moses delivered them, even there they learned to chase after other gods. And even there God saw them as two sisters. We think of the division of the northern and the southern kingdom as happening during Solomon, except that in God's thinking, in God's estimation of them, he saw them as two sisters all the way back in Egypt. He always knew that he was going to divide them. Son of man, there were two women, the daughters of one mother, and they played the harlot in Egypt, and they played the harlot in their youth, and there their breasts were pressed, and there their virgin bosom was handled, and their names were Ahola, the elder, and Aholabah, her sister, and they became mine, and they bore sons and daughters, and as for their names... Samaria, the northern kingdom, is Ahola. And Jerusalem, the southern kingdom, is Aholabah. And Ahola played the harlot while she was mine, and she lusted after her lovers, after the Assyrians, her neighbors, who were clothed in purple, governors and officials, all of them desirable young men, horsemen riding on horses. And she bestowed her harlotries on them, all of whom were choicest men of Israel, And with all whom she lusted after, with all her idols, she defiled herself. And she did not forsake her harlotries from the time in Egypt. For in her youth, men had laid with her, and they handled her virgin bosom and poured out their lust on her. Therefore, I gave her into the hand of her lovers, into the hand of the Assyrians, after whom she lusted. They uncovered her nakedness. They took her sons and her daughters, but they slew her with the sword. Thus she became a byword among women, and they executed judgments on her. Now her sister Aholabah, that's the southern kingdom, Judah, saw all this, yet she was more corrupt in her lust than she, her sister, was. And her harlotries were more than the harlotries of her sister. And she lusted after the Assyrian governors and officials and the ones near, magnificently dressed, horsemen, riding on horses, all of them desirable young men. And I saw that she had defiled herself. And they both took the same way. So she increased her harlotries. And she saw men portrayed on the wall images of the Chaldeans. Portrayed in vermilion, girded with belts on their loins, with flowing turbans on their heads, and all of them looking like officers, like leaders, like the Babylonians in Chaldea, the land of their birth. And when she saw them, she lusted after them and sent messengers to them in Chaldea. And the Babylonians came to her, to her bed of love, and they defiled her with their harlotry. And when she had been defiled by them, she became disgusted with them. And she uncovered her harlotries and uncovered her nakedness. And then I became disgusted with her as I had become disgusted with her sister. Yet she multiplied her harlotries, remembering the days of her youth when she played the harlot in the land of Egypt. 
And she lusted after their paramours, whose flesh is like the flesh of donkeys, and whose issue is like the issue of horses. And thus you longed for the lewdness of your youth when the Egyptians handled your bosom because of the breasts of your youth. Therefore, O Aholabah, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will arouse your lovers against you, from whom you were alienated, and I will bring them against you from every side, the Babylonians and all the Chaldeans, Pekod and Shoah and Koah, and all the Assyrians with them, desirable young men, governors and officials, all of them, officers and men of renown, all of them riding horses, and they will come against you with weapons and chariots and wagons and with companies of peoples. And they will set themselves against you on every side with buckler and shield and helmet. And I shall commit the judgment to them, and they will judge you according to their customs. And I will set my jealousy against you, that they may deal with you in wrath. And they will remove your nose and your ears, and your survivors will fall by the sword. And they will take your sons and your daughters and your survivors will be consumed with fire. They will also strip you of your clothes and take away your beautiful jewels. And thus I shall make your lewdness and your harlotry brought from the land of Egypt to cease from you so that you will not lift up your eyes to them or remember Egypt anymore. For thus says the Lord, behold, I will give you into the hand of those you hate, into the hands of those from whom you were alienated, and they will deal with you in hatred. They will take all your property. They will leave you naked and bare, and the nakedness of your harlotries shall be uncovered, both your lewdness and your harlotries. These things will be done to you because you have played the harlot with the nations, with the Gentiles, because you have defiled yourself with their idols. Okay, so Ezekiel told them that, while they were in the Babylonian captivity to explain to them why they were there. Jeremiah is telling them before the Babylonian captivity, this is coming. You're playing the harlot and God has already demonstrated what he did to your sister when she did this. Therefore, they've had ample warning. There's no way they can say we didn't know. And they are guilty, guilty, Guilty. Now, I am really driving this point because I want you to see the absolute impossibility of their situation. Israel and Judah have both gone into separate captivities, into Assyria, into Babylon. And there is no way that God, by his own law, can take them back again. So their situation appears to be absolutely hopeless. We're back in Jeremiah 3. And we're going to start in verse 11 and listen to what God does and then speaks eschatologically of the days to come when he is going to restore both Israel and Judah. And he's going to do it by his own sovereign grace, not by anything they can do because they have already proven that left to themselves, they're going to do nothing but be lewd, lascivious, faithless people. And those are the kinds of sinners, anybody relate to that, by the way? Those are the kind of sinners God saves. And aren't you glad to know that? 
I'm so glad that he came to save sinners like us. Verse 11, Jeremiah 3. And the Lord said to me, Faithless Israel has proved herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Which is remarkable, because they're all really, really guilty. And here God describes levels of guilt. It says Judah is even more guilty than Israel, because Israel didn't have the example that Judah had. And yet Judah continued in their treachery, even after God judged the northern tribes. Verse 12, go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, return, faithless Israel, declares Yahweh, and I will not look upon you in anger. Why? Why not? You are angry with them. You are judging them. You are charging them with their harlotries and their faithlessness and their turning away to other gods, and yet God declares Return to me, and I won't even bring up how angry I was at you. Why? Because I am gracious, declares Yahweh, and I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your iniquity. That's something across the board that we all do. We all reach the point where we have to recognize we're guilty before God, and we have to confess our sin to God. Only acknowledge your iniquity that you have transgressed against the Lord your God and that you have scattered your favors to the strangers under every green tree and you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. Return, O faithless sons, declares the Lord, for I am a master to you and I will take you one from a city and two from a family and I will bring you to Zion. By the way, that language of one from a city and two from a family is remnant language. I'm going to choose my people, and I'm going to bring them back to Zion. In my faithfulness, I'm going to restore them. And how am I going to do that? Look at verse 15. And then I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you on knowledge and understanding. And it shall be in those days... In the days that I restore you, in the days that I gather you, in the days that I take a remnant from you and bring you back to Zion, it shall be in those days when you are multiplied and increased in the land, declares the Lord. They shall no more say, the ark of the covenant of the Lord. That was the place where the priests once a year would go and meet with God. That was the demonstration that God was in the midst of Israel That all occurred at the Ark of the Covenant. That was the central location and central piece of furniture for all Israelite worship. And yet God says, the day is coming when you're going to say no more, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. And it shall not come to mind, nor shall they remember it, nor shall they miss it, nor shall they make it again. And at that time, They shall call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord. Does that sound familiar? Mm -hmm. It's like all the stuff we read in the book of Revelation, that Jesus himself is going to sit on David's throne in Jerusalem and that all the nations are going to flow to Jerusalem. Here, Jeremiah, in the midst of declaring disaster for Israel and Judah, in the midst of that still holds out hope because God 
describes himself as gracious. And he is faithful to his own people even when they are faithless to him. Yes, he punishes them. Yes, he corrects them. Yes, he brings them to repentance. But then he restores them. And when he does, at that time, they shall call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord, and all the Gentile nations will be gathered to it, to Jerusalem, for the name, for the reputation of Yahweh. Nor shall they walk anymore after the stubbornness of their evil heart. Why will they no longer walk after the stubbornness of their evil heart? Because God is going to take out their stony heart and give them a heart of flesh. All of this prophetic language continues to be consistent with itself. God is going to change them from within, and they will no longer chase after their illicit lovers, and they won't be stubborn in their evil hearts anymore. Verse 18, and in those days, the house of Judah will walk with the house of Israel. That's all 12 tribes. He's going to collect them again, and they're going to walk in Zion. The house of Judah will walk in the house of Israel, and they will come together from the land of the north to the land that I gave your fathers as an eternal inheritance. So when God made the Abrahamic covenant and said, this land is yours in perpetuity, he meant it. And there is a day coming, according to Jeremiah, consistent with all the other prophets in the Old Testament, the day is coming when God is going to restore Israel, bring them back to Zion, change their heart, give them repentance, and David's greater son, Jesus, is going to sit on his throne in Jerusalem. This is all completely consistent with itself. And then in those days, the house of Judah is going to walk together with the house of Israel. We don't have time to read it tonight, but you should be familiar with Ezekiel 37. Most people know the dry bones in Ezekiel 37. But the second half of that includes Ezekiel walking around with two sticks in his hand. And on one stick, it's the house of Israel. On one stick, it's the house of Judah. And then he's to take those two sticks, hold them in his hand together. And when people would say to him, what means these sticks in your hand? He's going to say this exact same thing. God is going to restore Israel and Judah. They are going to be one united nation again. And within that context, Ezekiel then goes into the Davidic promise of the Davidic king that's going to sit in Jerusalem. It's all very consistent across the board. Go read it. That's Ezekiel 37, 15 to 28. But don't stop at 28. Keep reading uh, oh, go to Ezekiel 37 for just a second. Just right after Jeremiah, go to Lamentations, which Jeremiah also wrote, and then you're going to find Ezekiel. They're right in the correct chronological order. Ezekiel 37, starting at verse 15, is the word of the Lord came to me again, saying, And you, son of man, take yourself one stick and write on it for Judah and for the sons of Israel, his companion. And then take another stick and write on it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and all the house of Israel, his companions. Then join them in your hand into one stick, so that they may become one in your hand. And when the sons of your people speak and say, will you declare to us what you mean by these? Then say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim. And the tribes of Israel, his companions, and I will put them with the stick of Judah and make them one stick 
and they will be one in my hand. And on the sticks you will write in your hand before their eyes. So look at verse 24. Following the valley of dry bones. Following this is the whole house of Israel who I'm going to raise up on the last day. Then God declares both kingdoms, northern and southern, all 12 tribes. And then he follows that with verse 24. And my servant David will be king over them. And they will all have one shepherd. And they will walk in my ordinances, and they will keep my statutes and observe them. And they shall live on the land that I gave to Jacob, my servant, the Abrahamic covenant land in which your fathers lived. And they will live on it, they and their sons and their sons' sons forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. And I will make a covenant of peace with them, and it will be an everlasting covenant with them and I will place them and multiply them, and I will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place also will be with them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in the midst of them forever. In Jeremiah 3, verse 18, we read, And in those days the house of Judah will walk with the house of Israel, and they will come together from the land of the north, to the land that I gave their fathers as an inheritance. They're both saying the exact same thing is my point. Do you think God means it? He left himself adequate witness. He obviously means these promises. And it's the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant and the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. He has to do this. Verse 19. Then I said, how I would set you among my sons and give you a pleasant land, the most beautiful inheritance of the nations. And I said, you shall call me my father and not turn away from following me. And surely as a woman treacherously departs from her lovers, so you have dealt treacherously with me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. And yet he's going to restore them. He's held them guilty. He has declared to them what it is that they have done wrong. You have been treacherous in front of me. And yet I promise you on the basis of the Abrahamic covenant and promises that I have made your forefathers, I'm going to give you the pleasant land. I'm going to give you Zion. I'm going to gather you there. I'm going to give you the most beautiful inheritance among all the nations. And you will call me father. And you will not turn away from following me. I'm going to take out your stony heart. And I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. I'm going to put my spirit inside you, all the things that we're going to see in Jeremiah 31, all the promises that we just saw in Ezekiel 37. God is not waiting for them to fix themselves so that then he can be back in covenant relationship with them. Instead, he is cleaning up their mess so that he even refers to them as, O Virgin of Israel. How do you do that? How do you call the prostitute wife the virgin, that takes miraculous change. And God is declaring miraculous change. Miraculous change that I think every one of us could say we've experienced. 
miraculous change that we've gone through. But just because we've been through it doesn't mean that God's not going to do it for Israel because he declares it over and over and over again that these are promises that belong to Israel. We, just by grace, are also the Gentile recipients. We have been adopted into the family. We have been brought into covenant with him. But the covenant belongs to Israel. You got it? No, I didn't say you got it. I said, you all right? No. Verse 21. A voice is heard on the bare heights. Remember earlier, he said, go and look on the bare heights. Look, try to find some place where you have not committed your harlotries. But look what's happening now in those very same places. A voice is heard on the bare heights, the weeping and the supplications of the sons of Israel because they have perverted their way. And they have forgotten the Lord their God. Return, O faithless sons, and I will heal your faithlessness. What an astounding God. I mean, just amazing. So he here in producing weeping and supplication in them is talking about their repentance. The same way again that when he returns and his feet touch the Mount of Olives, we read that Israel is going to look on him whom they have pierced and weep as one weeps over her only child. That's Zechariah. So again, the prophets all speak with one voice in describing the ruthless sinfulness and depravity of Israel and Judah and that God, for his own sake, for his own name, for his own faithfulness, for his own grace, is not going to abandon the people that he chose to himself, despite themselves. And that's the kind of God we worship. That's the kind of God we are counting on to save worthless folks like us. And then they reply to him, Behold, we come to you, for thou art the Lord our God. Remember how the promise ended in Ezekiel 37? I will be their God. They will be my people. And the day is coming, declares God, when they're going to say to him, Behold, we now come to you, for you are Yahweh, our Elohim. Verse 23, Surely the hills where you went and worshipped these other gods, the hills are a deception, a tumult on the mountains. But surely in Yahweh our God is the salvation of Israel. But the shameful thing has consumed the labor of our fathers since our youth, their flocks and their herds, their sons and their daughters. Let us lay down in our shame. And let our humiliation cover us, for we have sinned against the Lord our God and our fathers since our youth, even to this day. And we have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. Chapter 4 starts with, if you will return. And so now he's going to start declaring to them, you're really guilty, and I'm calling you to return. And if you return, I will forgive you. But in the midst of all that, God makes them promises. You will return because I will change you. I will gather you because I've made promises to you. And he is a really, really faithful God 
among really, really faithless people. Amen. You know, I don't know if you're anything like me. And I hope you're not. I try to follow God. I try to follow after his word. I try to remain faithful. But I, I just find out time and time again that I don't have that capacity within me. It's really good to know how faithful God is, even to horribly wretched people who committed harlotries against him, the kind of things that he would declare, I'm going to divorce you for that. And yet, he won't lose them. God's not going to lose you. He's not going to give up on you. Christ died for you, even in your worst moments, in your worst sins, when you wake up in the middle of the night and you can't stand you. God still loves you. And he will still do for you everything necessary to get you to himself. Isn't that good news? Amen. Grace, 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 grace. Grace, grace, grace. Even back in Jeremiah, even in the midst of telling them you're going into Babylon, but it's only going to be for 70 years. Then you're going to come back here. I'm going to keep working with you. Questions? Comments? Feedback? It is interesting to observe the, the nature of the language as being almost blushful. You know. It's graphic. Right, graphic. Yeah. And, you know, intentionally so, because it's meant to describe something that meets that, that is... <coughs> that is shockingly bad. Right, yeah. shockingly bad. So it, yeah. it's accurate language for God to use to describe... Describe something that we, when we make excuses for our sin, and as I'm sure Israel also believes that their sin is not as bad as it truly is. I mean, that's our nature to view our sin as not as awful as it is. When we read it in these terms, it really highlights what it means for God. It's shocking. We kind of cower back from it, like you said. It makes us a little shamefaced to hear those things. And yet it's completely accurate. And purposefully shocking. And can you imagine the holy God in heaven right now looking at the world right now as it is? The stuff that's going on in the world now. Can you imagine how he sees it? How he would describe it from his position of absolute holiness? Sometimes I pray before God and I feel like Isaiah and I say, look, first off, I'm sorry. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of really unclean lips, and I'm really sorry for all of this. I'm just glad that we're able to come to the throne of grace. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace midweek message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.